Sorry to interrupt your conversation. I'm sure you can continue that afterwards if you're not going to catch a quick ride out to the Circuit of the Americas like I am and catch the race. I walked in this morning and lost my voice, which is fun. And uh, Lamar says, it's not Christmas. I'm like, Lamar, you're not an F1 fan. I'll put the F back in F1 for you, bro. You guys, come on, the greatest Mexican Formula One driver of all time. This is my Mexican flag, get up. Currently stands in second overall, right behind Max Verstappen. If you need an education in F1, that's a second sermon. Look in the scroll, look in the comment section for the connection to that. <clears throat> that's probably why I don't have a voice, because I was out, all, out there all day Thursday. I'm sorry, Friday. And then I came back to a, an amazing show here in the 04, uh, the Warren Treaty. If you don't know the Warren Treaty, you missed an amazing show. And I screamed and screamed and screamed and still haven't learned my lesson. I just, it's not an unlimited resource, the human voice. But uh, uh, I pride myself on being excited a couple times a year about sports. And today is that day. So I'm going to whisk out of here. If you need to talk to me, call the secretary that I don't have. Uh, we'll talk next week because I'm, I'm heading to the race. Half the board's out there already. And I wish I was joking. I'm not joking. <clears throat> we know where our priorities are on a Sunday morning. So, did anybody catch the John Mayer lick? Jesse, where are you? Anybody else think we're going to break into a John Mayer song? Pay attention to the details around here. So, I promised to be brief today because we got a race to get going. In fact, here's a funny story Molly, Molly Burpo, who's wearing the only glasses frames in the room that rival the coolness of mine today. She knew I'd say that, that's why she wore them. When I was a valedictorian, uh, or the president of my student body uh, of Bible school, I know that we had listened to about 17,000 too many sermons that year. So when I was supposed to get up and give my speech embedded in this whole, you know, everybody's giving a talk, we're graduating, let us go. And so instead of giving another speech, I got up and I quoted St. Augustine, who I disagree with vehemently, except for this one quote. He once said, love God and do as you please. And that was the sum total of my speech to the student body. And I sat down, and they're all my friends to this day because I gave them back 45 minutes of their life. But anyway, today I will be brief. So I'm excited. <clears throat> you might be able to tell by my voice. I'm excited about where we're going and what we're talking about these days. I really am. And that's not to say that I'm not generally excited, but I think I'm a little more fired up than usual. <clears throat> and I think that's important because excitement and enthusiasm are much better things to follow. I was going to say much better things to draft, but I know you're bored already with F1. <laughs> Much better things to follow than duty and obligation. Now think about this here for a second with me. Something shifted in me recently, and I can feel it, and I wonder if you can feel it, and I wonder if the same might be true for you. You see, this is how seasons work. Not just one organism turns colors and drops leaves. You know, it, you know it's a whole system that begins to change in a new season. Faith and devotion don't have to fall into the category of duty and obligation, friends. That was a generation ago, if not two or three. But faith and devotion in the way we live out our Christian life does not have to fall into the list of things we have to do or else we feel guilty. Wouldn't faith fit better in the category of, say, delight? I mean, if we reread Jesus again, wouldn't we see something about that? Anyway, for whatever reason, I feel genuine excitement and enthusiasm about where we are headed as a church. It's as if I've worked my whole life, and if you can't hear my voice, I'm sorry, Mac will amplify it as needed today. It's already failing. It's as if I've worked my entire life to get to this point in this place with this staff supported by this board of extraordinary people in the company of all of you. It's as if everything has come together to bring us to this place where we get to commit ourselves to getting free in these ways. What ways? Well, the ways you're breaking free. 
the life story that you've been living over the last couple years. It's as if we are now put here to build the kind of church that helps others do the same sort of thing that we have done, get free in the same ways that we have gotten free. If we are indeed molting uh, into something new and, and into something that, that, that's coming yet, that's something we haven't seen yet, but into something new for what lies ahead, which has been my thesis since the very beginning, if we are molting, then everything that came before this point is now going to provide us with everything we need to succeed and thrive at this next great thing if we can let it go, if we can release it and move forward. Because there's always going to be a next thing, you guys. I'm afraid that's the only guarantee we have is that there's always something else coming. And the word integration came to, me, to my mind this week in a conversation I was having with Caesar down at radio. All things are beginning to integrate for me now. I wonder if the same might feel true for you in some ways. And that must be where, as I think about it, where the excitement and the enthusiasm are coming from. The Bible calls it joy, and while joy will always be something elusive, here's the fact, we were nonetheless built to experience it. In fact, we were built to live in it. It was made to be our reality. We were made for joy. So for me, I feel like joy and integration are the result of a lot of years of releasing and accepting. If you release and accept stuff long enough over a long enough period of time, and if you do that with enough things in your life, eventually you end up with nothing but yourself, which is another way of saying everything there is. Well, you end up with yourself and God if you want to be super precise, and that's when life really begins to integrate and take on meaning. Anyway, I'm fired up about our future as a little faith community. We are here in the city that we love, on the, on the street, rich in culture and art, about to move into a season of expansion right across the street, across Lamar, where we're going to have a building built for us, suited for our needs, finally. Now, it's going to take three or more years before we actually occupy that space, but when we do, our roots will go even deeper into the heart and culture of South Austin, and I'm excited. Now, I know a building isn't everything, I'm no dum-dum, but since we aren't gonna have to pay a 30-year mortgage for the perfect building that expresses our values in South Austin, it's a no-brainer. It's a golden opportunity for us to clarify who we are and what kind of space we wanna create for the people in our city. And it all just feels exciting to me, if I'm honest. Maybe it's COVID has lifted. Maybe I have COVID right this minute, I don't know. <laughs> I keep getting things that they say aren't COVID, and I wonder who really knows what COVID is anyhow but it all feels exciting. And I don't want to be anyone else in any other place at any other time doing any other work than this right here with you. So if you can't feel excitement from that, then maybe you should try cold brew in the morning instead of hot coffee, <laughs> which is significantly more caffeine, Andrew, as it turns out. So we've been talking about thriving, and you can consider today part three of that conversation. And our text comes to us from no stranger. His name is Luke, and he's been our guide for, for weeks now. Let me just read you the passage. It's one of my favorites. Now, this is Luke's recollection many years, or somebody who wrote in the hand of Luke, many years after this happened. And here's what he recalls. Chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He, referring to Jesus, also told this parable. Now, notice who's the audience. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, regarding, they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Now, pause. That's a basically a way of saying his audience is every living human. <laughs> Does anybody not think a little more highly of themselves than they should? Just saying. Verse 10, here's the story. Now, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves and rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's an Alpha Tori fan or a, I don't know, an Aston Martin fan. He says, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of my income, but the tax, this tax collector, standing far off in verse 13, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is classic Jesus. You should be able to tell by the way he sets this up that this is not actually an account of two actual people going to an actual temple on an actual day. No, no, this is a parable, which is something different. It's a composite story constructed intentionally to make a point. Now, generally speaking, if you're paying close enough attention, you'll notice that most parables make a point about who's in and who's out of the circle of mutual empowerment, as our friend and mentor, Dermot O'Murchu, prefers to call the kingdom of God. Parables are stories about who you thought was in and who you actually have to reconcile with the fact that maybe they are, but you didn't think they were. That's what parables are generally about. Now, parables tinker with our preconceived notions, don't they? They're designed to shock us at the hearing of them, to defibrillate us, to awaken us, specifically to awaken honesty in us. You see, parables should initiate a kind of soul inventory, And if we internalize them properly and if we process them in community, catch this, they should eventually help our mouths say what our ears need to hear because it's what's really true about how we think about the world. That's what parables should do. For whatever reason, we struggle to articulate sometimes our true biases, but a parable should pop the can open and let that come out. They should help us square up with what we really think about other people, and that's why Jesus used them. So when Jesus starts out a story by saying two guys walk into a bar or into a temple, it's kind of the same thing. When he does that routine, that's our cue to watch the players and start monitoring our internal gauges. When Jesus takes the mic, we should start paying attention to ourselves. And if we aren't triggered in some way, if our biases and judgments and prejudices aren't triggered in some way, then we're probably not paying close enough attention to our guts. I wonder, how good are you at reading people? Well, the Pharisee wasn't very, was he? And all week I tried to write out the joke, fuzzy wasn't very, fuzzy was he? Third grade, I can still remember my little cubby with a blanket, you know, the nap blanket would go in the thing. He wasn't very good at reading people. Can you glance at someone and just instantly fill in the gaps accurately? I know I can't. I think, I used to think I could, but I'm not sure I was ever really true about that. I was ever really honest about that. You see, my mind fills in the details way too fast to be accurate. But that doesn't make me a bad person. It's actually a really neat function of our brain. Our neuropathology has evolved in such a way that filling in the gaps and making quick judgments on the fly is automatic. It's an axiom for us. It comes naturally. And this has always actually really served us well as a species. But it also severely limits us when we think we know what people are and what they aren't worth by a single glance, doesn't it? No one knows another person after a judgmental side-eye glance, no one. But hold back any urge to make a cartoonish villain of this Pharisee. No one doesn't do this. No one, including me and you. Besides, exactly none of what the Pharisee did with his energy and devotion was bad. Think of the things he's bragging about. He was the natural hero in our story, the one who took it all very seriously. Not only did he comply with what was required of him as a Jewish leader, he went above and beyond, and everything he did was admirable. Except that contempt in his heart for his neighbor. He wasn't evil or stupid, but he was wrong, friends. But then again, so was the tax collector. One thought way too much of himself, the other thought way too little, and neither one in the end was right. Notice the body language of the tax collector. 
totally the opposite of the Pharisee. No fluff, no bluster, chest collapsed to make himself unseen, unseeable. You see, bowing one's head and pounding one's chest with fists is what makes, it's what a man who's suffering from shame does. It's what that looks like, which is what Jesus actually came to solve. I was conferring with Sam this week about this message. She's a lectionary preacher too, as you know, and she had this thought pulling from this text. What might repentance look like if we took away the shame and the guilt? This guy had real things to repent of. Of course he did. This tax collector had things to repent of. So do we. All, but, but all this shame, all this guilt, is this really necessary? Could we not just look to heaven and say, I blew it. I'm sorry. I'll do better. I know I'm loved. Oh, that's a life goal for me. I don't know if that's in your bucket. That's in my bucket list. This collector of Roman taxes thought so little of himself as it turns out that he actually is actually hard for me to watch. I would prefer to watch the Pharisee puff himself up than watch this guy crush himself. You see, shame triggers me when it comes over your face, when it comes over my life, when it comes over anybody I'm in a relationship with. And it's probably because shame has been my shotgun partner for all these 49 and 9-12ths of, of my life, right? These 49 years. This man thought he knew what God thought of him, but he wasn't right, was he? God wasn't ashamed of this tax collector. There would have been no actual reason to cow in shame to make himself as small as humanly possible. I don't care how he earned a living. The men, known to us as tax collectors, and of course there would have all been men in the society of the time, also known to us as publicans, were a unique subgroup of the first century Jewish society. Now, we don't know a ton about them, any of them in particular, other than the fact that they transacted for personal profit at the expense of their countrymen, which, of course, describes every business that you and I are involved in today. Sorry, it feels foreign to us now to say it, but in the world of Jesus, profit wasn't a, wasn't a morally neutral subject. That's a different sermon. We don't know a ton about who they were, but the way that they turn up in these parables, by the way they turn up, we can safely surmise that they were seen almost universally by the audience members as bad people, people who were easily hated, except, of course, by Jesus. In Jesus' parables, the tax collectors are often the good guys, (laughs) the ones who went home justified and forgiven, as in today's story. Now, some scholars believe that these tax collectors were men who were already outcasts among their people. And for some reason, and we can only hypothesize why, they actually had very little to lose by doing a job that provoked great hatred and contempt. In other words, if you already are the object of public scorn among your people, why not become a puppet of Rome? What difference does it make? If you could make a handsome living, who cares about what people thought of you? And that actually makes sense to me. It would have been a way to culturally, to, to, to extract taxes from a population without igniting a revolution. You see, if you extract the taxes at the end of a spear dressed as a Roman soldier, it might not go so well. But if you can somehow employ or deploy a turncoat class of their own society, then you can control the occupied people. And that thought took me somewhere important as I tried this week to distill the main point of this parable, and this is what it would be. In a way, both of these men stood outside the circle of community. They were both isolated, if you think about it, both alone. I'm guessing you caught that little detail in our text where Luke remembers Jesus to have said the Pharisee stood by himself and the tax collector stood far off. You noticed that, right? Whatever these men were or were not, they were both outside of their community for different reasons, granted, but both suffering in similar isolation. 
The gathered faithful in the temple that day would have been praying together, standing in mass, doing their liturgy of realignment in community. And of course, we can't read this text without having a couple of comments on prayer. That's what I think prayer actually is. It's realignment. It's not moving the reluctant or reticent hand of heaven. It's aligning our hearts and our minds to life itself, to the heart and the plan of God, to outcomes well beyond our control. Now, it's true. Prayer does change things. It just so happens that you are the thing most often changed by prayer. But I digress. Friends, this is not actually a teaching about prayer or about how to pray. This isn't an encouragement to pound your chest and cow in shame before a merciful God or say things that aren't actually true. I just have to say this. No one is just a sinner in the eyes of heaven. That's never the full story of anyone about any person. And this isn't a wholesale condemnation of the Pharisees either. Jesus loved the Pharisees too. In fact, I think of all the times he teaches directly to them within earshot, even in their homes. Jesus spent a ton of time helping the Pharisees understand his wisdom. This parable is a prime example. Luke admits at the beginning that Jesus was talking directly to those who struggled under the cruel and unbearable burden of self-righteousness. If they didn't matter, he wouldn't have engaged them so often. This isn't a discouragement from doing good works like almsgiving or tithing. No, even if it puffed up this guy and compelled him to stand and pray loud enough in public to be heard by others. No, no, this is no condemnation of that. This isn't about prayer at all, friend. Now, to be sure, Jesus did go on to record his own thoughts about prayer. I wonder if you remember in Matthew 6, in a sermon that's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words. He said, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they look to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. (laughs) But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need of before you ask him. I love this so much. When Jesus wanted to be heard on the subject of prayer, he didn't use a parable. He just taught directly at it about the component parts of a proper praying posture. He slays high-performance public prayer, doesn't he? He just takes it right out of the water. I could summarize this passage this way. Jesus says, don't use a lot of words when you pray and don't do it in public where others become your audience or else they will also become your only reward. Well, this deflates most of what I grew up hearing. I don't know about you. In the spiritual context of my upbringing, public prayer was performance art. It was your chance to affirm, to be affirmed by the community around your astonishing spirituality and the ability to use words. But again, friends, prayer is not the subject on Jesus' heart today. Isolation from community and incorrect ideas about what God thinks of us, that's what Jesus is taking aim at. This is about two men who were vulnerable, standing outside their respective communities, both for different reasons, but both needing reconnection in their own way. And boom, just like that, we are now looking at a passage about thriving, aren't we? A couple of ideas jump out to me from this text. Number one, no one thrives standing alone. It's just the truth. Standing outside the nurturing resources of community, we're all vulnerable. This is precisely the kind of relational isolation that Jesus came to solve. The second thing that leaps at me from this is, if we can hear it, this parable can teach us that no community benefits by throwing people out, by allowing them to stand alone. That doesn't fortify health, friend. That just destroys people. 
Now, recently you've heard me talk a lot about <clears throat> our individual need to walk out into our own individual wilderness. And it's true, there are times when we need to face our demons in solitude. But just as the Spirit of God lures Jesus into that dark place in the wilderness, just as that happened, that same Spirit of God will eventually turn around and lead Jesus right back out of the wilderness, back into community, and he will do the same for you and same for me. You see, one feeds the other. It's an endless cycle, always repeating itself. We did evolve the ability to survive alone, we sure did, but we were made to thrive together and thriving will always be a community process. If you don't believe me, ask yourself this question. Can I enrich myself, deepen myself, stretch myself, challenge myself the same way and to the same degree alone as I can in the company of my people? Which brings up the question, what exactly isolates us from others? Well, if we look at the Pharisee, contempt and judgment, assuming we know that what we are worth and what they are worth, assuming that we are better, a false and inflated sense of self-righteousness isolates us. You will always end up alone if this is how you think. Well, what else isolates us from others? Well, look at the tax collector. Shame, assuming that we are just sinners, assuming that we are unworthy, assuming we cannot even lift our heads because we have done this or said that or been there or seen that or whatever Friends, you aren't just a sinner. That category doesn't exist. You aren't just anything except a child of eternity, except the carrier of divine purpose, except the embodiment of the very life of God. That's what you are. Did no one whisper this in your ear when you were a child? If we're gonna build a church in South Austin, friend, that welcomes all, that stands for justice, that marches when it needs to, that speaks truth to power when it must, that feeds the hungry and clothes the naked and empowers the disenfranchised, a church that admits its own lack of diversity and works tirelessly to bring greater balance and representation. If we're gonna build that church and maintain that kind of church, we're gonna to need to band together to do it. Not even, oh, there you go. I waited long enough until Christina said, she said, Amen. This will no doubt be, it will spring from individual work, friend, but it will go way beyond your individual spiritual work in the desert. This will absolutely require the, the, the involvement of a community. Now, friends, if you listen constantly to the whisper in your ear that you're so much better than any other person, you will live a life of loneliness and isolation. Preening and peacocking might garner you the respect you think you need, but it's a rotten way to live, friends. That's a gross way to live. And that kind of arrogance grows rampant among progressives. So let's not shake our heads too quickly. But friends, it really is no healthier to assume less of yourself than God does. It's equally isolating to pound your chest and hang your head. That too is gross. It's not virtuous. It's not spiritual. I know entire Christian doctrines that were built on this idea, the idea that we are unworthy worms, sick and broken creatures that God cannot even look upon unless he looks through the mutilated body of the son he murdered to remind himself how to love. And I hope by putting all those words in there, you're beginning to see how thin, how thin that worldview of God ever was. That idea is just as destructive and unhinged as self-righteousness run amok. Friends, somewhere between I'm better than everyone and I'm worse than anyone is a better place to land. Somehow in time, if we trust, we'll begin to see ourselves the way that love does. The point of today's parable was that both self-righteousness and self-loathing keep us from the fullness of community. 
So I offer you this final thought, and then I can exchange you a thought for a keyboardist this morning. Where is my keyboardist this morning? Can anyone play the piano today? If you've been dreaming of fronting a rockabilly band like today's band, now's your chance. I think it's funny that he was playing John Mulaney licks on the weekend that uh, Taylor Swift dropped her new record. Do you guys, you read up on these things? The 19th song being about John Mayer, of course, when she was 19, there's 32 songs on the record because he was 32 when that fell apart. Y'all got to do some homework for God's sakes. Please tell me, what do you read about all week if you're not reading about Taylor Swift songs? Gosh! You can tell who's got five daughters in their 20s, or four of the five nearly in their 20s. This final thought, give me some, give me some mossy music. You got some mossy music? Y'all know I've been reading about moss. What can I tell you? There's no cool left in me at 50. There just isn't any cool left. If your child is a science nerd getting picked on at school, you buck them up and you put them in red, white, and green today and you tell them, science nerds for the win. Any science nerds in the room? What do you read about for fun? I read about moss, I'm just saying. Listen to this though. This is offering for me an an interesting perspective into what we're talking about as a church as we begin to say, what is it gonna take for us to thrive? We gotta get up on our feet now. We gotta grow some stuff. We gotta hang on. We can't be fragile. We can't let the next wind blow us away. Guys, this kind of church matters. It just matters. Okay, that's enough of that. I'll get soft again if I can. As it turns out, There are strategic reasons why moss learned to thrive on land almost 100 million years before the great trees were able to do that. With no root systems and no structural stems to help them stand tall in order to compete, moss had to rely on the family to create thick enough cover to trap the water and hold it in place long enough to benefit from it here on land. You see, the atmosphere seems generous with its water, but it asks for all of it back when it's done. It'll pull it right back up to the sky. If you look close enough, a moss leaf, and sometimes they're so tiny you can't see them without a lens. A moss leaf is only one single cell deep, friends, which means it absorbs water at the leaf, which means water must stay there. Unlike trees, which the leaves are waxy and they're designed to push the water to the roots, the moss has to hold it there to absorb it. It relies completely on a neighborhood of moss to thrive. It cannot thrive alone which speaks to me gently now in a way I can understand as a recovering individualist. In the world of botany, mosses are the amphibians of the plant, of plant evolution. Half, halfway between algae and land plants, they, their embrace of change is instructive, if not con- convicting to us as we consider how we're going into change too. And I'll go more into that in the coming weeks. Just know this, they could never have managed it alone. And neither can you, and neither can I, friend. And I don't say that to shame you if you find yourself alone now. Reach now, stretch, challenge yourself to rely on those around you now. Because here's what I know to be true. Healthy organisms functioning optimally in healthy organization is what the world needs to see. It embodies the life of God in a way that people can understand. Friends, we don't have to be enormous to succeed. Let's bury that vision. We just have to thrive where we are. What would that look like for you now? Well, only you can answer that question. 